So I've been exploring caves since I was a, a teenager. It was a bit more like grabbing a flashlight and seeing what was there when I was a teenager, but now it's a lot more like a proper expedition. As you'd imagine, people may be mounting an expedition to go to Everest. We have similar type expeditions that we go on, but we're going down and not up. That's Hazel Barton. I'm a professor at the University of Akron. Um, I work in the departments of biology and geology. Barton's cave expeditions are more than an extreme sports pastime. She's working on solving one of the biggest public health problems of our time. She's hunting for bugs, microbial bugs, sometimes hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth. And what she finds may hold the key to making sure we've got working drugs to fight off superbugs when we need them. I'm Luke Timmerman. And I'm Meg Terrell, and you're listening to Signal. Today, we explore the threat posed by superbugs, or drug-resistant bacteria. Public health officials are warning that we could be headed toward a post-antibiotics world unless we do something, and fast. And one news story recently put us closer to that scary future than we thought. Stirring out of the frankly disturbing news from the Centers for Disease Control late today, a drug-resistant superbug that the medical community has long feared now found in the United States. It involved a gene called MCR1 and the threat of what CDC director Dr. Tom Frieden called a nightmare bacteria, one that's resistant to even our last resort antibiotics. But before we get there, let's take a step back and explain what a superbug is and the scope of the problem. So this is obviously not a technical term, but um, generally scientists call bacteria superbugs when they, one, have the capacity to cause infections in people, and two, they're, they're resistant to multiple antibiotics, usually three or more. That's Lance Price. And I'm the director of the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at the George Washington University. Whew. You've probably heard of some of these superbugs, MRSA or MRSA, or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is one that's been in the news in the past few years. But it's only one of several posing serious threats to our stores of effective antibiotics. The CDC estimates that at least 2 million Americans get sick every year from bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and that superbugs kill 23,000 people. MRSA, or MRSA, was the quintessential superbug. Lance Price again. So with Staph aureus, once they're resistant to methicillin and a few other antibiotics, there's very few good ones left to treat it, right? So there's vancomycin, uh, but that's not a very good drug. And so when we start getting desperate enough to use toxic antibiotics that are not very good, that don't penetrate tissues very well, then we start to apply this term superbug. A couple years ago, the CDC published a report outlining the 18 biggest drug-resistant threats to the United States. They ranged from concerning, like vancomycin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, the next step down the line from MRSA, to urgent. That last category includes a bug known as CRE, or carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. CRE is spreading. More and more patients are at risk of serious infection and death. Although we don't know what the future will bring, we may have a short window of opportunity to take action. That's a public health recording from CDC Director Tom Frieden. The agency says CRE causes 9,000 drug-resistant infections in the U.S. per year and 600 deaths. It warns that CRE have become resistant to all or nearly all available antibiotics. 
One of the last effective options on the shelf is a 50-year-old drug called colistin. Doctors basically stopped using it in the 70s because it's toxic, but that's why it's still effective. It's a classic drug of last resort. So remember that MCR1 gene we mentioned at the top of the show? It contains code that helps the bug resist colistin. It turned up in a woman in Pennsylvania at the end of May. Luckily, she didn't have CRE, and the type of bacterial infection she had could still be treated with other antibiotics. But the concern is that CRE will someday meet MCR1. And so the bacteria picks up this, this suite of genes and can go from being totally susceptible to antibiotics, i.e. non-resistant, to being totally resistant in a single genetic event. And that really would be a nightmare. It is a serious global health problem. Dr. Anthony Fauci is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But the fact that the MCR1 gene is now in the environment, and if it's in that one person from Pennsylvania, you can be sure it's also you know, under the radar screen. Once it gets into a bacteria which is resistant to everything but colistin, then the MCR1 gene that makes it resistant to colistin is going to be a real problem. So to put into perspective what that means, we've had antibiotics to cure bacterial infections for about 70 years. They completely transformed our lives. A scraped knee. You know, people used to get cut on thorn bushes and would get staph infections in that cut that would then get into their blood and they would die because we didn't have antibiotics. That was the pre-antibiotic era. The post-antibiotic era could look a lot like that, although it wouldn't happen all at once. So somebody gets scraped and if they get infected with one of these untreatable strains of bacteria, then they could die just like they did before we had antibiotics. So how did we get here? Some might say through decades of failure on both a public health and market basis. Let's look at the public health side first. You may have heard of a guy named Sir Alexander Fleming, whose messy lab space at St. Mary's Hospital in London developed an unexpected bit of mold while he was on vacation in 1928. That turned out to be the beginnings of penicillin. Fleming, a professor of bacteriology, understood even in the earliest days of these miracle drugs that their power was limited. He even warned in his Nobel Prize acceptance lecture about underdosing penicillin and thereby creating resistance. And so he said, you know, I hope that we never let the ignorant man just sell these in every market and misuse these antibiotics because they will have blood on their hands for the people who die of drug-resistant infections. He did basically say that. His actual words contain a very straightforward explanation of how misuse of antibiotics leads to resistance. He said, The time may come when penicillin can be bought by anyone in the shops. Then there is the danger that the ignorant man may easily underdose himself, and by exposing his microbes to non-lethal quantities of the drug, make them resistant. That was 1945. Seventy years later, we are exactly where Fleming warned we would be. But we didn't get here only by misdosing antibiotics. Sometimes we use them in the wrong setting, for the wrong bacteria, or worse, for infections that aren't even caused by bacteria at all. We haven't had tests that can tell quickly enough what's causing an infection. So doctors sometimes have to throw whatever they can at a problem before knowing if it's the right thing. Because oftentimes we've already kind of lost the war by the time you realize who your enemy is. That's Dr. Francis Collins, director of the NIH. 
He says our diagnostic abilities haven't improved much since he was a medical student in the 1970s. And that's especially troubling with the threat of superbugs. A lot of the problem is not knowing you're dealing with a resistant organism until the patient's already been sick for 72 hours. And it's not just human use of antibiotics that's contributing to the problem. It's also our use of them in animals. So they discovered early on that they could feed animals antibiotics and they could make them grow faster. This is Price's field of study. People have been using it to, to save costs, basically. But they're using them at low doses, which is exactly what Alexander Fleming said was a bad idea. And they're using them in billions of animals, which is also what Alexander Fleming warned about, using them too much. And this would all be fine, of course, if we had shelves of new antibiotics waiting to take the place of the ones we've rendered useless. And Price says that was the expectation. We always had a new drug that we could turn to. We just have this enduring faith in technology that says, you know, hey, we're going to have another antibiotic. All right, yeah, there's a new resistant bug, but we'll discover a new antibiotic. But we haven't. In fact, discovery of new antibiotics has dwindled almost to a stop. According to the Pew Charitable Trust, which has a remarkable set of data about antibiotics, discovery of bacteria-fighting drugs peaked in the 1950s. There hasn't been a new class of antibiotics discovered since 1984. Well... There was one discovery that generated excitement at the beginning of last year, a new potential antibiotic known as Taxobactin. It was discovered in soil, like the majority of our existing antibiotics. And what excited scientists so much was that the discoverers claimed there was no detectable resistance to it. But some are skeptical. It's supposed to be no resistance could ever develop, and we're all just like picking our noses on that one. It's like, yeah, yeah, um, nah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Remember Hazel Varton, our cave-exploring microbiologist? Absolutely, resistance will emerge. History is on her side. I know, <laughs> sorry. One of the reasons we've had so little new antibiotic discovery for the past three decades is that nature was so fruitful for a while. We found new drugs in sewers in Sardinia, in the jungles of Borneo, and on the slopes of volcanoes. But then, we kind of dug everything useful up. It's getting to the point where if you go in and you try to isolate a novel antibiotic from 10,000 organisms, you're gonna, we, we call them old friends, that you're gonna find old friends or familiar friends, that you're finding the same thing over and over and over again, because there's so many of them and they're so easy to find. So where Barton is looking is where things aren't quite so easy to find, in caves, sometimes completely untouched by humans. If you're digging in the back garden, you're pulling out the same guys over and over and over again. There's only so much diversity. We're interested in caves because they're incredibly competitive. So the, the caves we go into are very large and very deep. And because of that, there's not a lot of energy that gets in from the surface. There's no nutrients coming in. So they're all down there squabbling for what little there is and fighting over resources. And one of the ways, there's, there's multiple ways they fight, but one of the ways they fight is the production of antibiotics. Barton's work had been supported by Cubist, one of the last big companies that focused on antibiotics. Early last year, Cubist was acquired by Merck for $9.5 billion. So the <laughs> kind of a sore topic. Yeah, Merck shut down natural product discovery and, and laid off everybody who was working on it. So we're back in the academic realm now, 
Um, so no, no one is doing it. So that brings us to the market side of this equation. Merck says it's one of only a handful of companies that still has an active antibacterial discovery program. In fact, it was one of the companies that helped deliver penicillin as a drug during World War II. But it had donated its entire natural products library to the Institute for Hepatitis and Virus Research back in 2011, after making a decision more broadly as a company to focus on vaccines and synthetic compounds, rather than those found in nature. It emphasizes, though, that it does still have potential new antibiotics in the pipeline. But it's one of just a few. Even as the superbug situation gets worse and worse, and the public health warnings ever more dire, drug companies, for the most part, have abandoned the space. The problem with this therapy area is that the return on investment on an antibiotic, if you apply the traditional pharmaceutical model, is very low. So when you couple all the challenges of discovering and developing antibiotics with the fact that the return on investment in the current traditional pharmaceutical model is very low, this becomes a very unattractive area for for companies to uh, invest in. That's David Payne. I head up the uh, Antibacterial Discovery Performance Unit at GSK. Return on investment. That's a key part of why his company, GlaxoSmithKline and Merck, are some of the only big drug makers left in antibiotics. We've already talked about the low-hanging fruit problem, the fact that we've dug up most of the accessible bugs in nature. And designing new medicines in the lab to fight bacteria hasn't been super successful either, though people are continuing to work on that. But that's not the only problem. The business model for antibiotics is the epitome of a disincentive. If you think about drugs for rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, those are designed to be taken chronically for patients' entire lives. Antibiotics? They're designed to cure infections as fast as possible. That means one single payment, not a monthly income for the rest of a patient's life. Which one do you think investors prefer? (laughs) But wait, it gets worse. It's not only the short treatments compared to medicines that you could be on for your entire life. The other issue here is that as far as we're concerned, when we have a, a new antibiotic approved, We only want that antibiotic to be used absolutely in the patients that that really need that antibiotic because there are few alternatives. So companies spend sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars developing a new drug, committing to the huge risk that it may not pan out at all, only to finally get the drug approved and then for nobody to use it. Add to that, some say antibiotics have become a victim of their own success. You know, they're so successful, uh, you know, historically in, in in fact, at one point, um, you know, someone at the FDA said, you know, we can turn the page on infectious disease because we have cures for, you know, for infections. That's not the case. Jeff Stein is the CEO of Sidara Therapeutics, a young biotech company working on new approaches to antibiotics and antifungals. So there is kind of an entitlement that these have to be really cheap drugs. And what that does is induces people to use the cheapest drugs available, and that has gotten us to where we are right now. So despite the massive public health need, the deck is stacked against antibiotics as a business model. And people in charge are starting to recognize that and to try to change it. This is a very troubling situation and one that does not have a quick and easy solution or we would have figured it out. And it's one where unless we have the whole ecosystem of medical research and product development uh, working together and making this a priority, we're going to continue to fall behind. 
NIH Director Francis Collins, who we heard from earlier, says his groups are working on new targets for antibiotics. But that alone won't do it. We need commercial partners uh, to carry those through. And I think everybody understands uh, why that's a challenge, because the market forces don't work very well for an antibiotic that you may want to save only for rare instances of somebody with a highly resistant organism in which you will treat them for a limited period of time. It's like the opposite of what most drug companies would want to see. So the U.S. has stepped up with a number of initiatives to try to solve the problem. There's the GAIN Act, short for Generating Antibiotic Incentives Now, signed into law in 2012. It gives additional market exclusivity to certain important antibiotics and aims to speed them to market. There is also something called the PATH Act for Promise for Antibiotics and Therapeutics for Health. That aims to address situations where there are dire public health needs, but small numbers of patients. Like, for example, the situation we saw earlier this year with MCR1. Here's Jeff Stein again. So how, how do you get a drug approved for that? Uh, when it appears, it has a dire consequence, but there are no drugs that are approved for that yet. So how do you get approved when the patient population is so small? Under the current regulatory paradigm, uh, it's virtually impossible. So there, there's a good news, bad news story with antibiotics. Those who listened to our last episode will remember that we talked a lot about the effort that goes into understanding mechanisms of action. One of the good things about antibiotic discovery is that once you have an idea of how an antibiotic is supposed to work, and you can test that drug in animals, if it works in the animals against the bacteria, the chances of it being replicated in humans are much higher than they are for, say, a cancer drug that works against cancer in mice. So the biology is more predictive, and that reduces some of the risk that drug makers have to take into account when they lay out a budget for clinical trials. And that's essentially because if you think about what an antibiotic is trying to do, it's killing this foreign invader. And it's going to kill that same foreign invader in a, an animal the same way it would kill that foreign invader in a human, presumably. However, uh, maybe there are differences in toxicity or, or certain other things that don't make 100% translatable because we don't see everything perfectly sort of panning out in, in big phase three studies, but certainly better than in other diseases. Yeah, that's right. So once, let's say you've got a promising antibiotic that's made it through the animal trials and you're ready for the clinic, then the question becomes, how many patients really need this to demonstrate that it works and that it's safe at reasonable doses? And that's the part where the FDA has shown more flexibility in recent years uh, in the wake of the GAIN Act of 2012. Uh, the FDA has a special designation now to essentially prioritize applications that have the, the greatest potential public health benefit or are the most novel that, that can make the biggest difference for patients. And antibiotics have a, you know, as good a chance as any other therapeutic type to get that high priority status at the FDA that can move them along, or at least keep the, a promising drug from getting buried in, uh, uh, on some bureaucrat's desk. Right. And so all of these are sort of regulatory solutions for drugs that have reached 
sort of the end goal, applying for approval or, or going through clinical trials. And I think the other side of this is the public health side, the stewardship of what we have and trying to keep those useful. And you had an interesting story about that recently, actually. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, I had an experience at my local hospital that I considered quite encouraging on this front. I, uh, I cut my thumb in a kitchen accident and it was pretty bad. And I, I washed it out at the sink right away and put pressure on it, uh, but realized that I, I needed to go to the hospital probably to get some stitches. So I went there and they decided not to put the usual antibiotic uh, dressing on it with what's commonly sold over the counter as Neosporin because this was considered a low risk cut. And the physician assistant told me that, yes, uh, if you do get swelling or, or signs of infection, come back in and we'll, we'll clean it up. But it, I didn't have that problem. It was fine. I went home and never needed an antibiotic. And I, I took that as one small sign that uh, doctors, first-line healthcare providers are being, uh, they're, they're aware of the problem and trying not to throw fuel on the fire. It looks like in a lot of ways, all of the stakeholders, maybe not all the companies, but a lot of stakeholders are making moves to correct this problem. The regulators are stepping up. The U.S. government's trying to create incentives. Scientists are working on this. And probably, obviously, the NIH has talked about how this is a huge priority. So presumably, people applying for grants should be getting them. At the same time, Dr. Collins says we're not yet where we need to be when it comes to solving this problem. I would not state confidently that we're on a path to solving this uh, in the near future. So hearing all this may make you feel helpless, but there are things you can do to help. One, don't demand your doctor give you antibiotics when he or she doesn't know whether you need them. You may not even have a bacterial infection. Two, stand up for more attention to the issue. Write your congressman or pay her or him a visit, suggests our DC-based microbiologist, Lance Price. He also suggests voting with your dollars when it comes to antibiotics in our food. Look for that label that says uh, no antibiotics ever or, or never ever or no antibiotics used. And of course, we can put our faith in science, but we've got to hope that the pace of discovery turns around from where it's been for the last 30 years. And that depends on people like Jeff Stein at Sadara, David Payne at GSK, and intrepid explorers like Hazel Barton, down underground in untouched, massive caves. I think it's it's curiosity. You know, some people are super, super curious about the world around them and want everything explained. And, and if there's blackness, there's only one way to figure it out, and that's to go in it. As for the rest of us, we'll have to hope that blackness holds new leads in our never-ending fight against the bugs. Thanks for tuning in to Signal. We're a production of STAT, a national news publication reporting from the frontiers of health and medicine. A special thanks today to Dom Smith, the willing Brit on STAT staff who played the role of Sir Alexander Fleming, who is actually Scottish. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. And a special note today, after 13 amazing episodes, where Katie transformed us from bumbling print and, now for me, TV reporters, into people who don't sound totally ridiculous in audio, who slowed me down and sped Luke up, came up with our name, and so much more, Katie is moving on to greener pastures. We want to thank her for being so awesome, and we know what she does next will be just as cool. 
and we'll be sure to update you so you can follow her adventures. For now, follow her on Twitter at ScienceWriter. Thanks, Katie. Okay, back to the regularly scheduled outro. Signal's senior editor is Jeff Delvisio, and we want to hear from you. Email us at signal at statnews.com or tweet us using the hashtag SignalPod. Next time on Signal, Chinese hamster ovaries. Thank you.